Have you been zombified by Russian shenanigans? I mean, maybe, because a lot of the episode, I'm like, are we sure Russia's the bad guy? And I <laughs> I do wonder, like, wait, do I am I coming across as the um as the spy? Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, are you? I guess you can't say. If you were, you wouldn't no. you probably wouldn't bring it up. Wait, um, did you just wink at me? <laughs> 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 so. Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for um, fresh brains and brains that are uh, apparently hijacked by Russian influence. That's maybe maybe that makes them all the fresher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Athena Actifis, psychology professor at ASU and executive producer of Zombified Media. And I am your co-host, uh, Dave Lindberg Kenrick, a media creative director of media outreach at Arizona State University, and totally not a Russian spy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things that we have in common, you and me, Dave, we both love brains. We do. Yes. Yes. You know, different aspects, I think, of, of brains. Like, I like to just eat the brains. And I like to sort of trick them into helping, um, you know, the mother country. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this episode is I, I mean i love all of our episodes but i am so excited this episode to actually have somebody to talk about russia with because i feel like uh, for a very long time i've been like something weird something weird is going on with like russian influence on social media and not just in this country but maybe elsewhere and to talk to somebody who actually like knows what's going on and does research on what russia is doing uh, yeah to me that was amazing and i'm so excited that we got so, to do this episode so what, what was your favorite part my favorite part like i said just having somebody to talk to about just russia. it's like you know, I, I don't know about you. I mean, well, I guess being a Russian spy, you have a lot of people that you can talk to <laughs> about Russia, but I don't. So uh, <laughs> how about you, Dave? I really liked sort of getting a sense of how much the American agents know about what we're really up to. I mean, I, I liked um, I liked just getting to talk to people, like you said. So, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what's going on right now, Dave. <laughs> well. No, I think, it. I, no, in all honesty, I do think I, as I discussed throughout the show, I'm always like, well, how do we know what is really true and how do we know what? So I am, while I, to my knowledge, am not a Russian spy, um, I, uh, I'm always really cynical, right? And I'm cynical of the U.S. government. Um, and uh and so sort of, I do really like the part of the conversation where we're like, how do we actually know what is true? I think that was really fun. And I think that's really fascinating. And so, um, yeah, so that's my favorite yeah. actual part. Well, so. I mean, it is something that these days is such an issue is like, there's so much quote unquote information out there, right? There's stuff out there on social media, on the internet, and how do you know, like, whether it's been verified? How can you tell, like, where it came from, who generated it, what their interests are in, you know, like, why they put that information out there? So doing that deep dive, um, to me, it was just a super valuable, useful part of the show. Yeah, I think so. So, so uh, this week, we're talking with 
Scott Rustin. Do we never introduce? Did I completely skip over us introducing Scott Rustin? Did I just assume we said that? Oh, uh, yeah, cool. I don't think we actually said oh. that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, oh. and, and uh, Scott is just so uh, well versed in all these issues and actually does research on. Yes. Like, so, what he, so he works here at ASU yes. and he is studying misinformation and how wait so now he talks about the difference between disinformation and misinformation yeah but you're gonna have to listen to the rest of the episode to find out to find out so let's hear from this week's fresh brain scott rustin i know it's crazy but it seems so logical try to fight it but it's something psychological with you Thank you so much for being here with us, being on the podcast. I have been excited about this episode, like before it was even planned, when there was like the idea of talking about, you know, what's going on with like where crazy stories (laughs) that are on the Internet come from. I'm like, I want to know that. I want to know where all this comes from. So uh, in your own words, would you introduce yourselves to um, our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of meeting you yet like we have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. It's It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and for the benefit of all those listeners out there uh, who are not in this room, um, my name is Scott Rustin. Uh, I am a research professor at Arizona State University, and I direct a research center, the Center on Narrative, Disinformation, and Strategic Influence. So our focus, um, we pursue a particularly attentively interdisciplinary approach. So we bring together scholars from uh, the social sciences, from the humanities, and from data and computer science to better understand the information environment around us. So the humanities scholars bring uh, theories and insights into what it means to be human and how do, how do humans express themselves. Uh, the social scientists bring the rigor of actually studying these slippery things we call humans. Uh, and then the data science and computer science colleagues bring that ability to look at the information environment at great scale because that's one of the innovations of the 21st century is everything's moving at both speed and scale at unprecedented levels. So wow. that's the gist of our center. That sounds amazing. <laughs> um, I just have one question. You, you mentioned all of these people from all these different disciplines. Do they actually like talk to each other and work together? <laughs> <laughs> so um, yes, though we don't always speak the same language. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the key challenges. So we've been working in this mode for uh, a number of years, pretty much the whole time I've I've been here at, at, at ASU. Uh, I arrived in the summer of 2009, was focused on a project that was a, l- a little bit differently focused, quite a bit of intellectual overlap, and some very similar methodological overlap. Um, that idea of bringing humanities scholars, social scientists, and computer scientists together. And so that's what uh, Math in Public, uh, uh, 14 years, 13 years, coming up on 13, uh, 14 years. Um, it continues to be a challenge to get those different disciplines to work together and talk together. And it's not having anything to do with animosity. Everybody wants to. Um, It's just these interesting aspects of uh, the institution in which we exist, the sort of 
pressures and rhythms of a large university, uh, the demands on your, on your time, then the requirements, the way academia has organized and evolved over the hundreds of years that this institution has been around, there's certain career pressures, there's organizational structures, et cetera, and those have to be either navigated around, sometimes barriers need to be surmounted or burst through. So it, uh, and then you get to, then you finally get in the room to do science together. Yeah. And, and then you realize you actually have different cultures and you use different <laughs> words to mean different things. <laughs> and oh then you God. have to figure that out. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it's a repeat process for each new project because uh -huh. the, the team is slightly different. Yeah. And so, you know, you've worked with one particular computer science lab for five years and you've done a bunch of great work and then a new opportunity comes along, but you're partnering with a different one. Mm -hmm. And whereas their computer science terms are pretty common within their field, but how you use the terms from your field. So I'm, I anchor sort of the humanities and I'm sort of consider myself social science adjacent. Um, and uh, so that's the part that I personally play when I put these teams together, but you start with a new uh, computer science team and the other ones you've trained for five years to you know, you've we've worked together for five years to find that common language now you've got a new partner and it's starting all over again um and it's an interesting challenge but it's a fun challenge and you get to work with really great people so yeah. um it's been it's been a, a great run here yeah that sounds awesome to be able to put a team together like that with uh, these different expertise and then working together on a common goal so, so just tell me again i know you were touching on this at the beginning so what is the common goal that you're all working towards so the most succinct way to put it, and you'll discover over the course of this project uh, pro podcast that I have trouble with that succinctness, uh -huh. sure. um, is to better understand the information environment. And in particular, understand when that information environment is being manipulated for, uh, particular, for malign effect. Um, so that's where, uh, in the title of our center, we've got narrative is first... Uh, is, is, is up front. That is the core of what, the, what we approach all of our projects with. We are understanding through a lens of narrative because I am a firm believer that this is fundamental to how humans construct their understanding of the world as they put it into a narrative format. They put it into a format of interlinking stories. So that's methodologically and sort of intellectual philosophical underpinning that's foregrounded. But then the rest of the center focus is on disinformation and strategic influence. So disinformation actors that are out there perpetrating some sort of manipulation of the information environment to some sort of ill effect. So is this trolls, like what we would call trolls, or it's trolls and other things, or not exactly trolls? So uh, trolls could be part of that. Okay. Um, there's trolls that engage in uh, just sort of boorish behavior. Um, and whereas I hope that I don't get trolled with the, when I'm out there in, say, the social media space, uh, that's not a primary focus of what, uh, what, what we're working on unless those trolls are specifically working towards spreading false or misleading or inaccurate information with the intent to, to deceive or to, in other ways, manipulate in some malign way the information environment to, to warp somebody's understanding or decision-making. So they'd be like really strategic trolls for them to kind of be part of what you would study. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So if they sit down to create a bunch of posts that make it seem like there is a particular group in a particular place that is an activist group, and then they place these posts 
on a social media site such that people from an opposing political perspective would be likely to see them and therefore get really mad and then potentially be encouraged to go counter protest. And oh, by the way, those trolls are encouraging that group to be very angry, maybe come ready for a at least a verbal fight, if not a physical fight, mm. to create a more fraught social situation. That is a kind of troll that we'd be would fall into the uh, uh, coverage wow. area of, of what we're interested so, in studying. So this is like a, a troll that is like specifically trying to like polarize by falsely creating a an like a, an enemy for a, a group to kind of fight against. Exactly, exactly, and there, yeah. or or other trolls that would be uh, in the particularly one of our areas of interest is um, in the modern security national security context. How do nation states try and assert their interests when 50 years ago, the tools that they had available to themselves were maybe a little bit of diplomacy, maybe a little bit of economic competition, or, or maybe some economic sabotage or some other nefarious activity, or outright warfare? Well, nowadays, if you really want to change the direction of a democratic country, one way to do that is to go after the decision-making process of the voters. So if you mount a disinformation campaign by because now with the globally interconnected uh, internet, you as a nefarious nation state actor have kind of unfettered access to populations, shape their political will in your favor, and then now you're asserting, you're really you're affecting the core sovereignty of that other nation uh, without firing a shot. So yeah, wow. So I mean, we basically kind of like have set up through social media a whole infrastructure for like psyops, right? It's like you Absolutely. have access to like the minds and the motivational systems of anybody and everybody who's on social media and all you have to do is pay for some ads. So pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I, okay. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have a maybe naive question, but um, what do you sort of mention nefarious nation states, sure. right? What a, what do they stand to gain by, or what do nation states in general stand to gain by trolling each other, right? Like, I'm assuming they're not just doing this because they think it's hilarious, right? Like, I assume sure. there's some sort the of like economic or political, like, but so, is there? I don't like that's the thing I don't quite understand. What are they getting out or, of it? Like, what is, yeah, what is, like, what is, you get people arguing with each other. Halfway across the world. Yeah. What's right. it do for? So uh, who controlled the Crimean Peninsula in 2013? I actually have no idea. Who did control? Was it? It was, was that Ukraine? Ukraine. Okay. Who controlled the Crimean? Who has controlled the Crimean Peninsula since 2014? I think it's the Russia and the Ukraine are fighting for it, sort Russia, of. Russia, Russia, Russia okay. controls it. Okay. Um, so, uh, so this is a good example. This is, this, I'm, this, you know, it's like sure. you'll hog me a softball. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So uh, now there was uh, there was military action. There was, um, but over the course of say twenty twelve through twenty fourteen, uh, there was an aggressive propaganda disinformation campaign uh, run by the Russia. This you you know this because it was run in Russian state media. So they weren't hiding it all at all. So there was a particular shaping of news that was reported in Russian language media 
uh, major Russian uh, outlets that are either literally controlled by the Kremlin or known to be ideologically associated with uh, uh, the, uh, the Russian state, uh, shaping the information environment to uh, amplify accusations that there's that the uh, government of Ukraine, the Kyiv uh, government, was exhibiting fascist tendencies, that they were discriminating against uh, ethnic Russians that lived in Ukraine and Crimean Peninsula, um, that this government was incompetent, um, and that uh, they were erasing the Russian contribution to history by doing things like taking statues down and renaming streets. And this was all an affront to history, an affront to culture, and ultimately an affront to the human rights of ethnic Russians living in these locations. And thusly, that would should justify Russian intervention, which is, and then they ran a referendum in Crimea shortly before they annexed, and the, they reported that the uh, results were 95% in favor of Russian rule of the Crimean Peninsula, which is a very highly disputed uh, referendum. Okay, so that so that gets people there sort of like a little ambivalent. And then I assume that then doing similar things over here would make it maybe harder for us to all reach a consensus on Absolutely. who to support. That's sort of yeah, essentially the goal. There's lots, lots and lots of news accounts about the uh, election meddling uh, in 2016, uh, mm -hmm. perpetrated by the Internet Research Agency, an organization that is uh, in Russia, linked to the Russian government, all sorts of... Uh, reports from the FBI, reports from Congress, and reports from great investigative reporting by all kinds of outlets here in the United States about the activities that the uh, Internet uh, Research Agency conducted. Um, and, of course, there's the big news recently of a uh, class action uh, suit that was settled by by Facebook, now Meta. They're going to have to pay out some small amount of money to everybody who ever used Facebook through the period of like 2007 to 2014, something like that. Um, I don't remember exactly the window. Uh, because of the uh, access to data that Cambridge Analytica, which was an organization that was doing a bunch of data analysis, that there is some evidence that Internet Research Agency borrowed a lot of or obtained a lot of that um, data to enable some of their activities, such as placing ads on Facebook. So buying a sponsored post to land in your news feed that is curated by a troll in mm -hmm. whatever level of the building that they occupy in St. Petersburg um, that is designed with specific intent to, to get a reaction out of you. Very often this is in a, a highly emotional reaction. Gets you dismayed or angered or fearful about some thing happening. And, if, and you know, so writ large, like with the 2016 activity, was just about increasing polarization. Because the more polarization happens in a democracy like ours here in the United States, political paralysis. And political paralysis and political chaos benefit other actors such as, such as uh, uh, Russia. Interesting. Okay. Oh, no, that makes total sense. So Yeah. Oh. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, a lot of people think um, – so I end up with conversations at cocktail parties and mm -hmm. the, the coffee shop or wherever about, you know, what does your research do and – why, you know, isn't, isn't, you know, Twitter just a little bit of a funhouse mirror of, of society and it's not really, there's no there there. Uh, or, well, who cares what it's on my Facebook feed? Um, but you start scaling up and then you start realizing that 
uh, we're fast approaching the point where the majority of Americans get their news from a social media feed. And my great concern there is that people are not adequately crit- uh, critically evaluating the news that comes to them. If you get if if they're easy access to New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, CNN, MSNBC, even Fox News, whatever your news source. If you're getting through your social media feed, great. It's an easy access, easy way to get it. But layered in there is just random folks, which in the early days of Web 2.0, there was all this zeal about citizen journalists and everybody's going to have access to all this information. Um, But now everybody's an information producer, regardless of whether they have access to high quality information, whether they have a professional ethos, as most journalists are supposed to have, to uh, produce this information with that, those ethical considerations of the of the journalism industry, et cetera, et cetera. So now you've got this stream of information that people are consuming in an uncritical way, and that's where actors like the Internet Research Agency find it very easy to inject their malicious and um, whether it be confusing, dismaying, distorting, or outright deceiving material into the newsfeed. And then you scale that, and then you've got a problem. And, and how does this tie in with the, the storytelling piece, right? Because I assume that some of this stuff that's, that's happening, um, some of these you know, stories that are coming into people's feeds are compelling because there's some narrative to them that's, that's appealing. I mean, you mentioned like getting an emotional response. Right. Um, I, how how does the the story piece of it sort of fit in with the manipulation? Yeah, so I'm so the, I see these whether it's a meme or a rumor or a short news piece. Those pieces of information are understood as components of broader story systems, uh, and those story systems end up structuring the world with a couple of things. There's, uh, there's, there's the players, the participants, like, and they fall into a couple of different categories. There's people that are uh, sort of whose story it is. We might call that in literary terms. We'd call that the protagonist, somebody that opposes that person, an antagonist. And certainly a lot of politics gets parsed into that sort of binary uh, arrangement of one side against the other side. And so the side that your own allegiance is towards tends to be the protagonist. The other side is the antagonist. And now we have conflict. Conflict is the core element that drives, that drives all narratives uh, forward because there, there is an imperative to resolve that, uh, that conflict. There's some sort of goal there in mind. And then there's all the different events that happen either towards the resolution of that or against the resolution of that. Um, and that's where these little pieces of story that circulate in our information environment get slotted in to... Uh, to our understanding of of the of the story that is our life, um, so there's there's a there's an there's an idea that that uh, has that in some of my work here at ASU and some of my colleagues um, have leveraged. It's this idea of vertical integration that stories are maximally persuasive and and powerful when they when they become vertically integrated. And the idea of vertical integration is that. At the personal level, um, we we tell the stories of ourselves. So this is sort of the Donald Parkinghorn to go way back, uh, you know, a few years in psychology literature. Uh, that the story, the identity of oneself is is formulated as a story, and it has oh. a trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
we then survey the contemporary landscape and the world in which we live in, the, con uh, the current events. And those start falling into a story structure as well with this conflict. There's a, maybe an aspirational resolution. How is this going to play out? Um, and then where, where does the person fit in? If the person can see, this is the, thing, the cool thing about, about narrative as a structure of understanding is that there's an embedded logic of cause and effect and action in there. And then there's values associated with those actions. There's emotions associated with those actions. So if you see your own personal story integrating with uh, the current events, and then if that nests into some broader social, cultural, master narrative, um, then that can be very, mm. very compelling. So you kind of have three levels. There's like me um, and maybe that also includes like my family, my close relationships, the things that are, you know, my work, things that are very close to me. Then there's the sort of general like events that are happening. And then there's some broader, is it a sense of identity that that is kind of, you know, the, the top level that you're talking about is that sort of identity uh, or, or, or core values okay. um so an example that 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 we've used in a lot of our work um that stems from so when i first arrived at, at asu i was working on a project that was studying islamist extremist terrorist groups and how did they use storytelling to advance their cause and garner adherence and recruit and those kinds of things and so there is a um there's a story out of the quran which tells the story of the pharaoh and it's a, a pharaoh in Egypt who uh, basically usurps God's role on earth and making judgments. And so it's a story of tyranny and you don't want to uh, take God's role. And the pharaoh is, is killed at the end of the, of the story in the Quran um, with the aid of an agent, of, a human agent of God. Uh, then in the 19, uh, late 70s or early 80s, the Islamic extremist groups in Egypt started telling stories about Anwar Sadat, president of Egypt, who was instituting various uh, policies that they felt were inappropriate, the extremists felt were uh, inappropriate, and were branding him a pharaoh. So they tell all these stories that connect the current contemporary events in the context of that, of that widely known uh, story out of, the, out of the Quran. Then the leader of the crew that assassinated Anwar Sadat um, when he jumped off the truck and sprayed the reviewing stand with bullets, he has been said to, the eyewitnesses said, he shouted, I have killed the Pharaoh. And it's a claim that he repeated at his trial that, that what he was doing was enacting God's will. So he had put his own personal story. He self-identified as, I'm going to be the human agent of God on, uh, on earth. I'm going to kill this, uh, this Pharaoh on behalf of God. And that's that sort of idea that his personal story linked in with the current contemporary events, that sort of contemporary level of stories, uh, which then itself was framed within this larger context of, in that particular case, uh, a religious story. But it doesn't have to be uh, religion. It can be political identity. It can be national identity. It can be community identity. It can be all kinds of different things. Something, but it's something epic. Generally. Not always. Right. But, 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 uh, <laughs> something big, right? But something Maybe, big. Is there a sense that, like, that has some appeal almost to, like, grandiosity? Like, you're you know, you're part of this thing, you're an important piece of something that is, you know, maybe otherwise like so big that you don't know how you fit within it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, you know, to put it in, a, in, an, in an American uh, context, and by bringing this up, I certainly do not mean to draw a parallel between 
uh, a political movement in the United States with Islamic extremism, just because there's a similar uh, narrative phenomenon that I that I see uh, uh, going on. Um, but if you take if you think about okay, what is the what's a macro level master narrative of 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 the identity of the American nation? Um, an iconic story that really hasn't changed very much over time that tells us something about what it means to be uh, an American politically. Um, well, there's the there's the uh, there's the Boston Tea Party. Um, we've got an oppressed group of people that feel that there is a distant and unresponsive government. Their their own political will is being stifled, and and so they need to. And they've they've tried communicating with the king and to no effect, and so they stage an act of great protest and they jump on board a ship and they throw a bunch of tea in the water. It's a whole bunch of other stuff that was actually going on, a bunch of economic stuff going on too, which is really fascinating read. So um, sometime I encourage all your listeners to go read some of the details about what was really going on at the tea party, um, the Boston tea party. But okay, but that has become lore. That has become, you know, and we celebrate those here. Samuel Adams, there's beer named after him. There's, uh, you know, John Hancock gets the biggest signature. Like all the Sons of Liberty are like these famous people that that we look to as as heroes of the American Revolution, um, and lots of great stuff about that. And there's lots of great stuff about what does that mean about the kinds of political values that become part of Americana. Um, then you know, you look at the political scene in the roughly 2010 timeframe, and you start seeing these political rallies where people show up at the political rallies. In tricorn hats and the white wigs and the and the colonial dress and you're like what's going on? Well, they called themselves the Tea Party, and so uh, there's a parallel there. There's the this political this group of uh, of people saw contemporary events very similarly to those in the past. Distant, unresponsive government. Uh, Washington is a bunch of elites. The Washington, they're out, they're out of touch. They're making rules that don't accommodate for uh, the the problems on the ground as they see it. Their political will is not is is being oppressed. So they're going to stage protests and then to connect themselves more closely to that uh, the, that sort of lore that that mythic element of American identity, the dressing in the in the uh, tracker hat. So it's a very similar phenomenon. So it it, it just sort of it illustrates that this is super powerful. Uh, stuff for particularly for identity shaping and also motivating to action. Yeah, well, this is really interesting. And we oftentimes will make parallels with sort of evolutionary biology mm. and talking about sort of memes and how they can actually have their own fitness, right? So you can have um, memes in the sense of ideas more broadly, not just like internet memes, but you know, any any ideas that can like transmit from brain to brain. And it kind of sounds almost like, you know, these broader stories that are kind of shared, almost kind of create a situation where people, people's brains are like, like, you know, pre-adapted or like ready for memes like what you're talking about or ideas like Absolutely. what you're talking about, stories like those. Um, it's, it's like it's a fertile ecology or something, right, for these memes because you have these pre-existing stories and the environment of those pre-existing stories is the same from brain to brain. So once you have something that's a little infectious um, and it's good at getting from one brain to another, it's like, well, as long as you have that backstory kind of Absolutely. right then it can easily jump yeah so there's there's you know um so there's i'm a firm uh proponent of sort of 
the uh, theories behind cognitive narratology. This idea that what narrative is is much, much more than a book sitting on your on your shelf or the movie that you watch in the theater uh, or even the TV series that you watch on the TV or the YouTube series you watch on the YouTube or uh, etc. Um, but really at its core, narrative is a process of understanding. So it's taking in these pieces of information and organizing them into the structure that is narrative with the, um, the, the parties in conflict, uh, the desired goal to get to, to resolve the conflict, events that are happening to either advance towards that goal uh, uh, or not. And sort of the gist of cognitive narratology is that we're constantly ingesting all of this stuff and we slot the pieces of information as we see them. So if you're watching Star Wars for the first time and uh, then... Darth Vader's ship overtakes Princess Leia's you know, ship that she's escaping on and he stomps on board with all of his stormtroopers laser blasting and he's imposing and he's tall and he's dressed in black and you're like, he's the evil guy. Well, you've already got some cultural context for that and the idea of a evildoer, an evil knight, an evil warlord or whatever, pursuing the innocent princess who's going to get captured and then is going to need rescue. Well, that's a story form that is very common throughout at least Western literature. So audience members already come preformed, ready to underst understand that. Um, a challenge, watch this. Next time you watch Star Wars, sit there and watch it and just try and think of Darth Vader as the good guy. Um, mm. And think of Luke and the Rebel Alliance as an insurgency rather than as a rebellion. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how we use those terms and we label the terms and now we, yeah. uh, it becomes a sort of depending, fascinating exercise. Depending <laughs> what side you're on. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is there that, that that process of absorbing information, whether it's a little snippet, whether it's a meme, literally kind of what has become de rigueur, what a meme means on the internet today, mm -hmm. which is a, an image with a, even a, now we're, we only have one font type for memes, right? Like meme font type. Well, you know, sure. when memes first started and <laughs> yeah. uh, when that first idea came out, there was not a, we had the cultural norm of what we call memes type. But anyway, whether it's that little bit of a meme, whether it's a tweet, whether it's just a short brief posting on, on Facebook or even a TikTok video, whatever. We see that like, okay, where does the, where does that fit? Is that a, is that a goal? Is that a conflict? Is that, a, is that an enabling event? How does, where does this fit? Well, you've already got a bunch of structures already in your head, which culture has provided uh, one of those things. If you raised in a Western uh, culture and familiar with the combination of Westerns and science fiction and uh, stories of knights and damsels in distress and whatever, you've already got this idea that uh, princesses get captured and need rescuing. Evil knights, well, they tend to wear black and um, <laughs> they, uh, uh, they do the capturing and then they're authoritarian. And then if they can choke you by pointing at you, well, that's probably a sign of evil too. Um, but that's already, you know, that makes it very easy to comprehend that and it makes, uh, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. And so that idea about how we, culture provides us a bunch of narrative templates with which to try out things to start with. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, a a a way that a lot of these that the sort of disinformational elements for the for the bad actors the trolls that we started talking mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, with uh, a few minutes ago have an opportunity to gain a foothold because they can they 
those all of these sort of story structures are pretty well known. Um, and you know, if there's a core conflict, if, if 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 I'm right, if and all the other uh, all the narratologists <laughs> that I read and that I that I that I value over the course of of my my uh, tenure as a as a scholar, that says that a core element that gives narrative the vast majority of its power is conflict. Well, now you take a group of people that have a grievance. Well, that grievance is a is a is a conflict, and that's that is the core element of a of a narrative that a disinformation actor can exploit uh, mm-hmm. and create little pieces that make it seem like that grievance is worse than it is, or that a particular actor is the is the cause of that uh, mm-hmm. of that grievance, and that in order to resolve that grievance, some action needs to be taken against that actor that has caused that. So, all right. So here's here's my question. Thinking about Star Wars, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> back to Star Wars. Well, no, because Star Wars <laughs> is a consumer product that has gotten a lot of my money, not through just the <laughs> movies, but the Legos and all those sorts of things, of and taking my kids, right? Um, by, like you said, sort of satiating my own fascination with conflict and with good guys and bad guys, right? So I always sort of wonder right now when we're in these giant, these, the sea of disinformation and bad guys seemingly around every corner, whether they're from the other political party or they're from another country or whatever, like I, I am just curious how much of that really is um intentional disinformation and how much of that is just people trying to get hits right they're just and then there's just finding that ooh, actually if i say look out for this guy that gets hits so you know like or yeah so the dynamics of the information environment and the industry like the media industry has changed significantly um and there's there's absolutely there's actors out there that have just found a formula that if they're because it's fairly I think it's fairly widely known within sort of uh, uh, scholars that 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 study uh, social media phenomena, investigative reporters that study social media phenomena, and of course the people that actually create the algorithms there at the various social media uh, uh-huh. uh, platforms though they're generally under NDAs and they're not supposed to talk about it is that across the board, they, the, all, every platform's algorithms work differently, but they all basically have a common feature, which is they want to drive engagement. Right. They want to keep you <laughs> on the site. Why? Because all of these social media platforms operate on an ad- advertising model as the underlying um, business model. So the more time somebody spends on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok, on whatever the more opportunity that platform has to serve up ads. So therefore, and what keeps you engaged? Outrage. (laughs) Anger. (laughs) Fear. These are much more, and salaciousness. And so there was a great, I remember just so vividly driving up the freeway, listening to the radio, and there was an analysis of the phenomenon that is Howard Stern. And so this, I'm dating myself here a bit, um, <laughs> but there was, uh, there was, they were retelling this anecdote of during Howard Stern's career when they did metrics about how long do Howard Stern fans listen, and it was on average some number of minutes. It was some number of single digit minutes. It was like six minutes or seven minutes, which is actually pretty high uh, for radio listenership, particularly during drive time. Then uh, 
Okay, what's the average listenership of somebody who does not identify as a Howard Stern fan? It was double. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> really? In both cases, when they did the sort of qualitative social science to unpack, like, okay, why? It was, what is he going to say next? Because it was about the outlandishness and the and the uh, he was pushing boundaries and all that. So he was the, you know, a, a prototypical, you know, getting, you know, a troll. Yeah, right? going, yeah. You know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> call Howard Stern a, uh, necessarily a troll. I mean, he could have been troll-ish and like certainly Like a proto-troll? But certainly the kind of person aiming for clicks, you know, aiming yeah. for, for, for v- in that case, viewers. And so the, uh, and with the orientation of the platforms where there is not a lot of human editorial oversight, whereas... Contrast that with like a newspaper. Newspapers have always been open and available for any citizen to write in and ask that their opinion be published. For a variety of reasons, that amount of space was limited to the opinion page or the letters to the editor page. And then there was a possibly heavy-handed curatorial editorial component Im- imposed mm-hmm. by, the, by, by the newspaper, which is all completely gone. And there's some good parts about that all completely gone is that we do have access to our fellow citizens and what they think. Right. But the downside is it's it's totally unfettered. Um, and so uh, you've got the folks that are they'll do anything for clicks. They'll do anything for likes. <laughs> and even if that strays. And now are those people nefarious? <laughs> I think, you know, what my hope is, is that we reach a stage where the individual media uh, audience member, I hesitate to call this person a consumer because we can get into a whole debate about whether somebody who engages on a lot of social media <laughs> is actually a consumer of media in the old school classical form, the mm-hmm. way we would call somebody who watches TV a consumer of media. Mm-hmm. So it's a slightly different context, I think. But in any case, um, my hope would be that we reach a stage where we can provide tools and education to all of those users of media such that they've got a lot of insight into what is actually going on. A better understanding of the underlying uh, media industry practices of social media platforms, but at the same time also a means to vet the veracity of a piece of a piece of information, or at least its provenance, like where did it come from? What potential agenda might this uh, uh, entity have that's, that's sharing this information? That sort of thing. Yeah. It's 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 such a wild world. I mean, sometimes I think about like, you know, just how warped all of these incentives are on social media. Right. Because even as like a, a person who might be, you know, wanting to like tweet about things or, you know, share their opinion. Right. The platforms will positively reinforce you for things that are outrageous and polarizing because those keep your followers or you know the people who engage on that platform on there more so it's like we're all kind of being zombified to be more polarizing and outrageous with all the like i mean literally the way that these algorithms are tapping into our reward systems absolutely there there's this reminds me of an article that i read um a couple years ago uh and i think it was in the atlantic i'm not i don't i don't remember for sure there was an individual who was a blogger and this individual started writing, basically writing conspiracy theory uh, pieces um, and started getting a lot of likes. Uh, blogs started getting more and more popular. So he started selling ads and he became very prolific 
And he also became very well paid. Now, the he discovered over the course of his writing of these things, he started just kind of a shotgun approach. Any any kind of story that sounded crazy, he would spin a yarn. And then and he thought of himself as a fiction writer. He's just telling outlandish stories with kernels. They're set in the real world, and it's kernels of uh, of truth. But he found that as he wrote these stories, those that skewed towards a particular audience was, were the bigger moneymakers. Now, as it turns out, he was he self-identified from a different sort of political ideology than those that his successful stories were. But he got to a point where he had to make a decision between hewing to his personal political ideology versus the ability to move his family into a different lifestyle because of the uh -huh. amount of money he was making. Uh -huh. Wow. And so then he struggles with that and then he continues on. And, um, and But that is, it illustrates the powerful incentives that are out there um, affecting, you know, so here's, here's a guy, sure he could sort of, you know, one school, one, one perspective on this is like, he's deluding himself that he's a fiction writer because there is evident uh, effect of what he's writing in terms of creating a culture of people that have less and less trust in institutions because of the stories that not, he's not the only one. We can't put it all, all right, the blame right. on, I, on I, him. It's, he's, he's, he's surfing a, 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 uh, a contemporary <laughs> wave of culture. Um, but if he thinks he's a fiction writer, but other people see him as a journalist, then that's a problem. Exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, then you start to wonder, and this is what, in different ways, elements of the research that we do here at ASU starts asking questions like, what can be done? You know, can there be, um, so when a lot of this got started, uh, there was there was a lot of interest, you know, this is, we're now, we're, you know, seven, eight years ago, the term fake news was like the hot buzzword, right? And fake news was pretty simple. I mean, it, it evolved to mean just right. any news that you don't like. Right. But, <laughs> um, but in its in its origin, it was, you know, is there news that is in is there is there information being circulated that is factually in error? You know, and there's and there's ways to fact check. There's there's organizations that employ armies of humans to do fact checking. And then there's ways that we can computationally scale that with natural language processing uh, techniques to take a new piece of information that's on the internet, uh, check it against a few other things that either known bodies of factual knowledge um, or uh, does it share certain characteristics? And then back to the trolls, uh, trolls not only have particular behaviors in the sense of what they're doing and what their goals are. Um, there's the, you know, the trolls that just want, that are trolling for likes. There's the mm -hmm. trolls that are trolling for money and there's the trolls that are looking to abuse. Um, and there's the trolls that are looking to deceive. Uh, but then there's the trolls that are part of a organized campaign. And then those kinds of behaviors, not so much the what they're doing, but how and when they're doing it on at scale, you can see that kind of stuff. Um, and so now you've got to develop algorithms that do some causal inference and see like, oh, well, with this characteristic, this characteristic, and this characteristic, characteristic A, B, and C, one of them is a behavior time series analysis kind of thing. Another is a, well, this is the kind of rhetoric that they're using. And another is, well, this sure looks like a lot of other things that have been fact-checked already. Maybe you should, maybe, you know, here's a clue, warning flag. Here's a clue to the reader. 
maybe you want to apply a little extra scrutiny to exactly what's going on you know, behind this particular post. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I mean when I say like, you know, uh, some sort of halcyon future where we've got some tools that enhance the critical ability of, of audience members and at the same time, a whole lot greater awareness of the audience members about, about what's going on in the information so, landscape. All right. So since my, my first question was a softball question, <laughs> it's now, a little, now, a little more now, of a hardball, I think. mile an hour hard slider. So, and so that's this, is that doesn't every bit of news contain a certain amount of, hmm, I'm trying to think of how to put it. The way that I, it's, in my mind is that it's yeah it's a bit of storytelling and doesn't the sort of accepted the socially accepted true news maintain a have a have a story that is sort of built on maintaining a political structure that maybe doesn't work for everybody right and is that part of why maybe true news doesn't feel that enticing anymore right like to a lot of people um, yeah i think so i think you know i think there's i mean this is a this is a this is a comparison that just occurred to me right now so this is raw and uh, you know un, uh, un, awesome unbed, unbed. <laughs> um but you think about you know there's a lot of social turmoil in the 19 1960s uh -huh. uh, and part of that is there is a large segment of the population that started to realize that the embedded power structures didn't work for them i mean it 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 was longer than just the just the '60s, but certainly, uh, uh, and you know, the civil rights movement was going for a whole lot longer. But it it got some acceleration. Um, '50s into the into the '60s, it got some tragic impediments as well. But um, you know, uh, boiling up to a counterculture. Um, I think there's some parallels to today's contemporary environment. It's a different class of a different segment of society that is engaged in the perception that the power structure doesn't work for them anymore. Um, for them, it's the power structure doesn't work for them anymore. I would say that in the sixties, <laughs> the argument was the power structure never worked for them because they were never part of it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the part that I'm still trying to, you know, <laughs> in real time, make the, you know, exactly how the parallels, you know, there, but I think there are a little bit of, uh, of parallels there. I think there's a couple of other things happening in the world of, of news. It's, it's an industry in just abject catastro you know, catastrophic change um, in terms of its underlying uh, economic structure. It's the n economic news apocalypse. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you look at, you know, local papers are closing right and left. They're all consolidating into these uh, syndicated groups. Those syndicated groups then, you know, they hoover up, you know, a thousand uh, local newspapers thinking that they're going to achieve economies of scale and just give you know the same stuff to everybody and they only need to have one advertising department and they discover they still can't make it go um, for a whole variety of reasons and then they start canceling local uh, local papers. I mean, of the three of us in the room here, how many people subscribe to a print newspaper that is delivered on their porch? You know, every morning. No. no. <laughs> uh, and so maybe we subscribe to you know the digital version uh, uh, of that, but the rate is you know much lower. There's you know just the whole um, industry is in is in is in chaos. And there's regulatory differences too, because with with you know how many people uh, in this amongst this three mm -hmm. of us in this yes. in this room watch local news or watch national news 
by one of the original three major broadcasters versus the amount of time spent on cable news. Right. And of course, with acquisitions and mergers and acquisitions, a lot of those things are blurrily sort of combined. Um, but the regulatory structure for cable news is very different than the regulatory structure for broadcast news. So some of the story, so the storytelling, the storytelling with agenda, the storytelling, and I don't mean agenda, you know, nefariously. I just mean with an appeal to a particular audience, a slant that is intended to keep viewers viewing, intended to keep viewers loyal so they keep coming back so that they can be delivered to advertisers as products for for the advertisements, um, is very, very strong. And that has affected, I mean, I would argue that, take your pick, whether it's MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, any of the cable news, um, there's way more emphasis on the story told and the emotional effects of the story told than on the actual informational value of the content that they're producing. Um, that varies from show to show. Um, you'll notice that, you know, do any of those shows start with, hi, I am host, fill in the blank, famous <laughs> host. I'm an opinion journalist. So I'm going to attach the word journalist to give myself a veneer of credibility like I'm giving you the news. But really what I am is an opinion journalist. I'm going to give you. No, they just sit there. Hi, I'm fill in the blank. I'm here to tell you the day's news. And away they go. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's all about the packaging of kernels of information into a, I would argue this is, you, you, into a broader narrative. Like if you abstracted each episode of, Take your pick of show. Um, you would see it's the same. It's the same show every day. Right. <laughs> the individual words change. The individual topic changes very slightly, but it's the same show every day. Um, and so uh, the, and I think there's there is a loss. This is the crisis. One of the crises, like the institutional crises that I'm worried about. One is 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 news. Um, because for a long time, news is supposed to have a service to the public of shining the light of transparency on the halls of power, whether that's political power, corporate power, any other uh, kind of power, so that the society understands what's going on, um, so that that power does not um, pigeonhole and close itself off and then grow in unchecked ways. Um but if the institution as a whole, if faith in it is eroded, uh, then it loses its ability to do that. Education as an institution is, I would argue, also under attack in terms of its value as an institution of objectivity and an institution that can shed light on phenomena of society or, uh, around us. Um, and then increasingly, too, the judiciary is, is uh, uh, I, I think it is less immediately under a, under attack but the judiciary is is concerned about that there's various mm-hmm. uh groups think tanks committees etc um paying close attention to mm-hmm. um disinformational attacks on judiciary of of at all sorts of different levels so all these institutions kind of around truth and decision making are in some sort of crisis yeah, yeah. and you know okay is this some sort of nefarious, you know, uh, um, effort being orchestrated by uh, some sort of cabal of <laughs> evildoers? Um, 
And I'm not ready to say that. (laughs) But certainly there are some forces that the less critically evaluative the average person is, and there's a whole lot of reasons why people don't spend a lot of time thinking super hard about, like, when was the last time you read the terms of service for any of your social media (laughs) platforms or the next time you upgraded your mobile phone, whether it's an iPhone or a Samsung? There's no time for that. There's no time for that. But it's these super long uh, legal, abstruse legal documents. And you're just like, I don't have time. It's worth it to me to not pay any attention. And I'll just hit accept because I I need to function. I need this. I need this phone or I need this Twitter feed or I need this whatever. Um, but that, of course, allows for the companies to do whatever they say in their terms of service, like you giving up all your personal data <laughs> um, or a portion thereof. Um, but the more and, and more there is less and less thinking and there's just reaction, um, then it's more and more that those reactions just, you know, they, they, go, with the, they go with the flow. It's back to the evolutionary biology dimension that you were bringing yeah. up before, Athena, that there is a powerful incentive to be part of the group. Um, and if the, if, if the values of the group are X, Y, and Z, and the actions of the group are P, D, and Q, uh, and unless you've got the chutzpah to be the outlier and be, uh, uh, um, go, you know, be the salmon swinging against, against the stream, yeah. it's a lot easier and you can just move on with your day and, and focus on other things. Right, right. Um, and, and so then it becomes, okay, this is the story world that I nest within, and I'm going to yeah. see all of my stories within yeah. that that context. Can we talk about some of the stories that have kind of been manufactured for consumption? Um, what what are some of the sort of like examples of like good ones that have come from foreign actors and like ones that have like maybe failed and not worked. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a, that's a, so that's a good, good question. So a lot of the research that, that we have done to date have tended to focus on, uh, uh, environments that are outside the United States. Um, so we've done a project, uh, studying, this is why I brought up the Ukraine example about Crimea, Uh because we did a project, uh, uh, on that. And there is an example of, of types of stories told. I mean, this is, this is a pretty well-documented playbook of the sort of Russian propaganda disinformation activities is that they will uh, look to a country of their, uh, what they call the near abroad, which is the former Soviet republics that surround the western border, western and southern border of, the, of, of what is now Russia, but what used to be the Soviet republics. Um, and which have, to varying degrees, fairly substantial ethnic Russian residents populations uh-huh. um which russia tends to think of as somebody that they need to need to protect and so the story is told about discrimination that's a very common uh common theme so we did a study in in ukraine we also did a study in in latvia and that was an interesting uh comparison because there was a lot of of propaganda that the latvians because latvia latvia is a really small country there's only 2.5 i'm gonna get that number wrong by a little bit but i'm in the ballpark it's under 3 million speakers of the latvian language in the world so it is one of these small languages that is at risk of 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 um uh, of, of going away and so the latvian government has instituted that all education will be in latvian um, whereas formerly there were two kinds of schools. There were schools that were pr- primarily all the education was in Latvian and other schools were primarily the education was in, was in Russian. Uh, lots and lots of people in Latvia are bilingual between Latvian and Russian. 
Um, and so they passed recently in the not too distant past, they had passed a legislation. Uh, there was a campaign for legislation that had passed and the Russian propaganda machine said, this is evidence of discrimination against uh, ethnic uh, Russians. And then they would pump stories full of corruption. I've read a bunch of the, uh, of the, of the news articles that would say, you know, this minister in the, you know, the Latvian government is horribly corrupt because he has a Rolex. And you're like, you know, the implication <laughs> was that some other foreign entity gave the minister a, a, the Rolex and then he voted in a certain way. But the story is never about those kinds of concrete details the way you know you would expect oh well there's is there two at least two sources is there an eyewitness is there some other kind mm -hmm. of documentation no it's just a an assertion like that guy's like got a, a rolex witchcraft accusation it's like you are successful in some way you must be a witch you must be a witch exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. um so uh but uh if you're inclined to already distrust the government because maybe you've you've been raised in a society that's never had a truly functioning government or one that has always been beset by some kind of problem, whether it's a problem of corruption or a problem of just incompetence or a problem of, uh, you know, bureaucratic uh, obstructionism or whatever it is. So you just naturally have no faith in government. And now you get told a story that this minister who has a Rolex and you don't have the means for a Rolex off. You know, it which makes more sense, which is more congruent with the stories you already believe about government, that it must be nefarious <laughs> and, and, you know, some sort of sign of corruption, or it's that he has a wealthy uncle, or that the politician has, um, you know, worked really hard and then <laughs> treated him or herself, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to, to a Rolex. Um, instead of, uh, uh, and lives in a shabby apartment because they saved all their money for Rolexes or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so, <laughs> but the, the interesting thing was that those themes were consistent in our study of both Ukraine and, uh, and Latvia. Um, there was uh, a substantial change in uh, the balance of those themes across the whole data set about three months before the annexation of Crimea. That was, that was, and too bad we did this study in 2017, 2018, 20, I think we finished it in 2019 and then we moved on to do, try and use that data set to do some other things. Um, Cause if we had, in retrospect, had we had that knowledge, you know, in, um, you know, December of, of, uh, of 2013, uh, you know, leading up to the, hey, there's this radical shift in mm -hmm. how the Russian propaganda machine seems to be uh, addressing the, uh, what stories they're telling yeah. might have been an indicator. Hmm. I mean, that was part of the goal of that project was, can we, can we create some mm -hmm. kind of predictive function, you know, t uh, mm. technology that would be able to, to predict these kinds of changes. We didn't ever get, mm. get, get there. Mm. Um, the, uh, uh, you were asking about stories that um, were successful stories that, that, that failed. Um, we also did a study of, of Sweden where um Sweden accepted a whole lot of immigrants, especially from the Middle East, after the after you know, the wars in Afghanistan, civil war in Syria, um, the war in Iraq, etc. So Sweden was very generous in its accepting of um, of, of of immigrants, and um, the Russian propaganda machine was very attentive to any time there was any kind of a flare up, either in a a densely immigrant uh, zone, and it would attribute any of this uh, to 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 the immigrants. Um, and I was in Sweden giving a talk, um, and I described that this was one of the stories that was one of the consistent story types that was told by 
by by Russian propaganda media that uh, it was it was dangerous to go outside because immigrants were going to firebomb your car. They were going to kill you. They were going to assault you. They were going to endure this. And so there are about 50 people in the uh, in, in the audience. And 49 of them were nodding along with me as I, you know, as, as I presented this as, as a, as a propaganda and the consistencies and there's all sorts of it now. And there was one gentleman there that like, he couldn't resist it. Right. It says, he's like, but, but that is true. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, well, if the ratio of believability of this is, is 49 to one, yeah. I think Sweden's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, uh, it, and it does vary, you know, sort of, sort of uh, topic to topic, location to location, and also very much, you know, sort of what's your audience? Yeah. Um, Are there examples in the in the U.S. of like stories that you know have have been sort of constructed um, by you know foreign actors to try to manipulate American populations that haven't worked particularly well? So the ones, so the ones that stick in my mind are the ones that have actually had some sort of an effect. Yeah. Um, there is a uh, uh, there's there's one example of um, an an effort by this is by the Internet Research Agency to um, f- to create postings that suggested that there was going to be a Black Lives Matter uh, protest on a particular street corner in uh, Texas. I think it was Houston. And then a you know Blue Lives Matter or um, other uh, uh-huh. protest, and then to get them super angry at each other, but no, none of no actual civic group, either a group that was affiliated with the Black Lives Matter group or that was affiliated with um, any uh, other group, had actually organized protests for that day. So the people that showed up, which uh, were motivated to go show up to counter protest against black lives matter they showed up but there was nobody to oh okay okay counter protest against so the point being that it was effective by the russian group to motivate people beyond just being mad on social media they did have an effect of getting people out of their homes and muster on the street corner uh which is a little bit um that's kind of frightening a little bit yeah and it also seems like it's kind of like a internet play Right. It's like you have, you know, it's like a script of like we're going to like have all this, you know, conflict, but it's just it's just actors. But then the people who are watching don't know that it's a play. It's again, this like what you were saying about the um, person who says they're writing fiction, but they're seen as a journalist. So there's this this space where, you know, if we don't know that what's being created as a story is a work of fiction, um, we can't always tell that what we're consuming right. or what's consuming us yeah. is actually fiction. Yeah. And so that that blurry line gets really hard to, to, to parse. And so one of the things that's been fascinating as a you know, I don't make a core part of my research is sort of how entertainment culture is changing from, you know, uh, going to the movies and television. Um, you know, there was, there was the golden age of television, but it's really the golden age of streaming, you know, just a couple of years ago with just a bunch of whole tremendously fantastic shows are spread across the various streaming, Uh streaming channels. Um, 
But I think we're seeing probably the end of, uh, end of that. And the fascinating thing is, is the amount of time spent that would otherwise, I think, be called entertainment time. But it's on this blurry, you know, it's, it, it's all user-produced content. So a lot of the, you know, YouTube influencer, TikTok, you know, mm. those kinds of, uh, kinds of things. Um, and I, well, one, because it, this, has, this isn't exactly my core focus area of, uh, of, of study. I'm struggling even to think of the right genre terms to, uh, to, to put it in. But it seems to me that there is a growing interest that satisfies the same things that we want entertainment for, that historically we've turned to the arts for. <laughs> you know, whether it is, uh, I mean, the mass arts like, like cinema and television. But that, that society is turning more and more towards, it's something that is more connected to one's ex personal experience and personal thoughts, mm. um, rather than, you know, so, like it's the extension of reality TV out of the weird micro, you know, the weird aquarium yeah. experiment that is reality TV that is actually totally scripted, even though they call it yeah. un, uh, call it unscripted, um, which is actually shares a whole lot more in their storytelling practice to uh, to to conventionally scripted film and television mm -hmm. uh, production practice a little different, but it feels more personal. It feels that more, but now we're moving that next leap to. Not only does it feel more personal, but it's because it, it it is that that it's beyond a veneer of authenticity, and it's and it's peeling that veneer back to mm -hmm. like some actual uh, authenticity. Um, but but satisfying the entertainment goal, not yeah. the <laughs> informational goal, not just, and that's where if it's satisfying the entertainment goal and our critical filters for absorbing it are in the entertainment zone. As opposed to in the, I'm going to take this information because I'm going to make life decisions about it zone. There's something, when those two things start to blur, yeah. that gets Well, we put down a lot of our filters when it's like we're engaging with this for information purposes, right? So it's almost like if you think of us as having a sort of cognitive immune system that, you know, if we're like encountering news, then we're like, oh, let me run this through this filter. But if it's like, oh, no, this is fiction or this is me just like on my Instagram feed listening to the influencers who I have a parasocial relationship with, then you are you don't have your, you know, I am listening to news filter. Exactly. Up. And stuff can get in there. And maybe, you know, that you don't keep track of whether you, where you got it from and how reliable those sources are and if it was just a fanciful story that someone might have made up or if it actually happened. So I have a, I have a question related to news. <laughs> you're I'm like, Athena, you're ranting. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm just, I'm stuck on something. How do we know, because you've been talking about the Russian propaganda, mm -hmm. right? And how do we know, how do we actually know that Russia are the bad guys? So this is a thing that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm that informed on, but I'm. I, whenever I hear, "Oh, Russia is spreading this," I'm like, "Is that just a thing that we're assuming from James Bond movies, or like?" But it sounds like you have real reason to think yeah. Russia is the bad guy. What's right? up with the Russian shenanigans? <laughs> basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, if you take so if you know, take this particular source that I'm gonna I'm gonna quote for, you know, uh, you know. I highly encourage everybody to vet the sources that people uh, people quote. But so uh, General Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, this is a number of years ago, 
testifying before uh, before Congress. This is in the 2012 time frame, I think, roughly. So it was, you know, 10 years ago or so. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so he testifies to Congress and he says, you know, we've been keeping our eyes on the security situation in, in Europe. Uh-huh. Um, and we see a common set of activities playing out in the Russian near abroad, those, those former Soviet republics that, that, that surround uh, Russia. And that is uh, they will foment political unrest. And they will do it in a couple of ways. They'll, they'll do it with um, media. Because um, in all of those, the, the legacy television media in all of those countries is legacy uh, Russian state media. Um, so they still have lots of opportunity. There. So they'll do it with the media. They'll also do it with with uh, political agitators. Now, I don't have access to the intelligence reports that um, <laughs> you know. And 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 in this testimony, General Dempsey did not quote from the intelligence reports because you know, so, it was open testimony. It wasn't like the sure. behind closed doors uh, classified session. Um, that they're actually sending operatives in to to perpetrate uh, dissent, and ultimately the goal is to assert some form of control over those uh, over those countries. Um, whether that is in the cases of the of the um, and the Baltics in Ukraine, it's access to ports, uh, access to resources, particularly uh, natural gas or the transmission of natural gas and other oil uh, uh, oil products. Um, now there's an argument that says uh, Russian leadership sits there in, Metaphorically, sits there in the Kremlin, wherever they sit, uh-huh. sure. um, and they see this—the uh, increase of nations that have joined uh, NATO—and uh, that's the that's the Russian argument that it's actually NATO is expanding eastward into into uh, Russia. The the NATO argument is that but essentially we're taking their oil is sort of is that we're taking their, their the we're in terms of of geopolitics, uh, Russia sees. Uh, NATO as an existential threat to the existence of the Russian nation. Um, NATO does not see itself as an existential threat to the the, the Russian nation. Uh, NATO sees itself as a force for stability across, uh, across Europe. Um, But the Russians see it differently. Um, So the, the debate is, uh, is Russia trying to exert control over newly democratic, newly within the last 20 years, um, or 25 years, uh, democratic nations through surreptitious means to increase their own geopolitical power um, at the uh, to the detriment of uh, countries in Europe, West, Western-aligned democratic countries in Europe. So NATO um, sees... Or Russia sees NATO as a threat to Russia's freedom to foment political instability. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, that would certainly yeah. be that would certainly be the 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 the, the, the Western analysis of the Russian yeah. Uh, yeah. perspective. It's it is kind. Of, I mean, it's an interesting question because um, so there's a dimension to all of this that uh, looks like just a matter of perspective, right? And you've got the Russian perspective and you've got the NATO perspective. You've got uh, in the UK, you've got the Brexit perspective and you've got the Remain perspective. And 
you know, well is which 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 is which is which is better for the country. Um, the pro Brexit folks uh, mustered a bunch of analysis that said separating from Europe would be a great thing. And the Remain folks mustered a bunch of analysis, completely different analysis, complete like, I mean, they were, might have been speaking, you know, Martian and, well, you speak on Venus, Venusian, um, <laughs> yeah. two totally different languages because they just were not talking to each other. Um, they, they were comparing, you know, not even apples to oranges. It was, you know, apples to jumping or something, just two totally different <laughs> universes of discourse. Um, but, you know, across the, across the globe, there's like, you know, is it a matter of perspective or is there a way to ascribe? And this becomes an interesting, you know, to loop this back sort of to the, the work we do at, at, the, at the center. Um, something we didn't talk about, about earlier, but we danced around a little bit is, okay, what's the difference between disinformation and misinformation? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, within the field, the most conventionally adopted definitions uh, really come down to the difference is, is intent. So disinformation, the false, inaccurate, misleading information spread with a purpose to deceive, dismay, or otherwise do some kind of harm uh, or some other malicious intent. Uh, misinformation, false, misleading, inaccurate information spread out of other intent, ignorance, desire to be funny, um, desire for clicks, um, these sorts of innocuous uh, reasons for, for, for passing it along. So the question, you know, is it perspective or is there other indicators that there's some sort of intent going on? Um, and so there's, this is where uh, our work bleeds into, um, well, not bleeds into, we actively encourage the collaboration with people who study geopolitics and international relations. Um, so like one of my projects right now, you know, I mentioned we've got humanists, social scientists, and computer scientists. Well, one of my projects uh, we've got a two uh, individuals whose expertise is political science and international relations uh, on the team, um, because one of the things that we need to do is correlate what we find, how stories are told in the information environment, what direct, what's the arc of those stories, what's the outcome, and then how does that align with any particular nation's geopolitical goals, and are those goals in conflict with some other uh, uh, other nation to sort of get at that point is <laughs> yeah. okay. If some group, if we're going to label some group as the bad guys, how do we know that what right. they're doing is actually well and bad? I, and I think the the one thing that always sort of goes through my head, you know, and I think this is a thing that I'm not alone in this is this question of does my country's geopolitical goals actually match? My personal goals, right. or is the sort of little bit like I, I'd mentioned that that underlying lie is the underlying bit of misinformation that I that we're so used to this idea of hey America's going to benefit from this and you will too. I'm winking, you know, I'm winking for people listening, like because <laughs> the the implication is that we're just burn out on this sort of idea of. It never, it never trickling down essentially, right? So, yeah. So that's an interesting thing because you know, for historically, us as citizens who don't have a lot of expertise in geopolitics and who don't spend a lot of time studying nation states and their interests and 
realpolitik and the what happens you know at the UN and what happens in embassies when the charge d'affaires is summoned to the politburo and oh, or to sure. the ministry of <laughs> of, of uh, state or the ministry of whatever. Um, uh, we depend on the, on the characterization and the summarization of of what issues matter. We depend on the news. Kind of gets back right. to your earlier point yeah. about if well if we've lost all our faith in the <laughs> in the in the news as a as you know individual newspapers as a source and in the industry as a whole as a as a as an institution that provides some value to us in society and and it doesn't speak to me because none of my topics ever get raised. Um, that becomes a challenge and it also becomes an opportunity um, for a malicious actor to weave their way in there and, 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 say, and plant right. their own. Hey, well, finally, someone's looking out for you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. Interesting. so if, if you really want an interesting, fun experiment um, is to watch episodes. It's harder to do now because they, they, they uh, so RT America. Um, what a lot of people, so it's a cable show. You can, mm -hmm. you can subscribe to cable. Most people watch it through the internet. Um, what most people don't know is what the RT stands for, which is Russia Today. Oh, so okay. So RT America is uh, is a is a state sponsored um, state of Russia state sponsored? of Russia okay. yeah a state sponsored uh, a show uh, or channel by uh, Russia. The um, and during the course of uh, you know, through the course of the 2016 and almost the entirety of the of the Trump presidency. There was all of these associations of Russian activity that theoretically was supposed to be in the service of of, of Trump's victory in 20, 2016 okay. and continued okay. uh -huh. effects. That's a, a common story told, and it's a common grievance that uh -huh. Trump and his allies continued to 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 uh, to share. And so the assumption is that Russian propaganda is pro-Trump. Okay. Um, which would suggest then that Russian propaganda is pro sort of right side of American politics. Uh -huh. Um, the vast majority, not all, but the vast, the Russia Today is just fascinating because um, a bunch of their shows appeal very strongly to the political left of uh, of, the, of the United States. There's a few that uh, that appeal to to the political political right, but the vast majority of them on Russia Today, anyway. Um, some of their other platforms are a little bit different, but Russia Today appeals to the uh, to the uh, political left, pointing out um, corporate injustice. Uh, conspiracies, uh -huh. all the, all the, uh, and there, the, the other interesting thing is, you know, from the course of American history, there's lots of examples of corporations who acted in a manner that upon reflection were either outright nefarious yeah. <laughs> or in the interests of some constituents, but not all their right, constituents. Right, if right. you call it their constituents, you know, shareholders, customers, the public, yeah. The the elite owners, whatever. Um, uh, so there's lots and lots of uh, uh, specific examples of that. Is there massive societal wide uh, corporate malfeasance going on? I, I don't know. If you listen to Russia Today, the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, that it's <laughs> <Okay>. everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, but that's uh, um, an example of. Now, if it's just because it's state-sponsored doesn't necessarily mean that it is inherently um, disingenuous, inherently uh, um, against you know the interests of most citizens of the United States, uh, et cetera. Uh -huh. um, 
But I do think it is valuable for an audience member to know that if a show that they're watching is that is produced by an organization that is yeah a foreign state is, yes. is an agency of a foreign state yeah. yes just you know just like if i was a citizen of germany and i was listening to a radio show and it was sponsored by it was wholly owned by the cia i'd kind of want to know <laughs> right. um we do have radio shows in europe that are wholly owned by the united states we call it voice of america it was set up after uh-huh. world uh world war ii now I would I would argue on the side of the Broadcasting Board of Governors who would also argue that says Voice of America adheres to a very strict code of journalistic ethics. There's no editorial function uh, by the actual administration and the editorial standards stay the same regardless of whoever is whoever's in power in the White House, whoever's sure. in power in Congress. It's uh-huh. an independent agency. It and just gets its funding from the U.S. And at least it's called Voice of America. It's like saying, this <laughs> is from America. Right. Right? We, 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 <laughs> we do abbreviate it to VOA, so I suppose there's uh, people out there that uh, are like, oh, VOA, is that, which is the same sort of thing, because Russia Today used to be Russia Today, uh, and then when they expanded internationally, because um, originally it was Russia Today and it was a domestic. It was it was a home, home, sure. uh, okay. home broadcast, okay. you know, Hey, what's happening in Russia today? And then it started to expand, and then it expanded more, and then it became RT. Right. Um, and uh, but the fact that it's called RT America, I would have thought it was like yeah. radio talk or real talk, or, or like yeah, or, or retweet. Like here's yeah. all the things everyone's <laughs> <Yeah>. retweeting. <laughs> and I I haven't looked recently, so there uh, there became a point. This is a couple of years ago, so it's been a while. Uh, where YouTube uh, required that RT put a banner across the bottom of their videos that says, because RT was required by Congress to register as a foreign agent. Interesting. Um, and so there had to be a, uh, a banner. And one of the things that, um, so there is a study out there. I haven't read it yet. It's in the, you know, we all have like what, you know, how many, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of studies, you know, stacked <laughs> up on our desks of the things that we want to read um, uh, about, the effectiveness of those labels, the effectiveness of those labels in actually informing the viewer about the origins of the content, whether it affects the uh, interpretation, the believability, the relative value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, I'm, I'm eager to get to that part of my stack. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think it's an understudied, so uh, my colleagues and I did do a, just a basic lit review of um, responses to, uh, and in, in fact, a, a particular response. And this gets back a little bit to your, in a way, a sort uh-huh. of tangent off your question about perspective. Um, we did do a, a, a lit review looking for studies that if all you did was says, hey, that tweet over there came from Russia. Uh-huh. You know, what's the impact of that? Because the U.S. government does that kind of all the time. Like the State uh-huh. Department does that a lot. DHS does a lot. A lot of the government agencies depend on what they call attribution to sure. be like the first step of of that might be some disinformation over there. But the scientific literature is kind of inconclusive on whether on that whether has any impact. There's actually a relatively small number of studies that study. There's other phenomenon that are kind of related that there's quite a bit more study on. Um, but the question is, that kind of related is it close enough related to you know, anyway yeah that's um that the, the, you know that's the nerding out of, yeah. <laughs> of what, some of the things that we do in the center well i have to ask when we kind of get close to the end of the podcast we always sure. want to kind of bring it together with like what is sort of the worst case scenario what's the zombie apocalypse like of this 
kind of zombification Mm -hmm. that can happen through manipulation by foreign actors, right? Like if, you know, you have these influences that are coming through these stories, it's happening on social media, people's attention is being consumed by these things and they're, they're getting zombified. Like what kind of zombie apocalypse happens when this zombification um, gets intensified? If we, you know, turn up the dials on it, what, what's that going to look like? So in a darkly pessimistic sort of way, my first answer is I think we're, we're starting to see the early stages of this. Um, now, I have no meaningful memories of the counterculture era um, and certainly none that have to do that would be able to parse the level of polarization of American politics in in the period, you know, 1966 to 76 or something like that. Um, But in my own period of being modestly politically aware, um, I can't think of a, of a, of a time where civil discourse has been so absent and replaced by robotic uh, accusation and uh, this is true, I would argue, on both sides of the of, of the political aisle. I mean, it's 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 I'm, I'm reminded of that of that um, of that line in The Godfather where where um, uh, the 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 sons of Cor- of Vito Corleone are are together and they're sort of like, well, what happens if this and what happens to this? And then and then one of the old capos says, well, if that happens, then we go to the mattresses. <laughs> and it's like we're we're headed that way. It's like mm. like like we're holed up. And, and, you know, the, an idea from the other side of the political spectrum is, is, is just inherently bad and, and wrong and should be contested and that person should be vilified on social media at great length and what have you. And partly because I swim in the toxic end of the social media universe (laughs) as, you know, professionally, um, uh, I, my view might be skewed because I I don't see a lot where the where the the, the civil uh, uh, discourse is and so so the dark part is that that a lot of the it's very difficult to pinpoint how much of the contemporary polarization that we're seeing here in 2023 was exacerbated and measure how much it was exacerbated by any activities done by the Internet Research Agency or any other foreign actor. There's all kinds of evidence that other nation states have been active in um, in discourse in social media in the United States with uh, arguably nefarious ends to do something. Oh, great. Um, so we, we don't have to worry because it's not just Russia. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> great. So... Um, but even the most famous and the Internet Research Agency activities in, in 2016 is, is arguably the most famous um, and juries out about its actual effectiveness. You know, the anecdote of people actually showing up on a street corner in, in, in Houston is a is a powerful and moving anecdote. But it is the only anecdote that I know of of of, of actually translating into real world effect of, of people motivating and doing something um, to the fact that we're talking a lot about. Uh, and the fact that it became a, a a recurring theme throughout the Trump presidency of some sort of association that that if nothing else, for a whole bunch of people, it eroded their faith in, you know, regardless of 
of uh, of of whether you're which side of the political spectrum you're on. Historically, a president wins the election, and sure you're disappointed, and sure you might want the different candidate to win the next election. Um, but with with some exceptions in modern uh, history, you know, very scandalous thing in the early '70s that comes to mind. But um, and periods of uh, other other minor scandals. So, I mean, the, the scandal is one thing, but a, just a complete loss of faith that an entire administration is um, not in the pockets of some. Even every single scandal that has ever plagued a, a president that I know of, and I'm no presidential historian, historian. I don't think any of them were associated with complicit com, mm. complicitness with a foreign state actor. The way the some of the implications of mm-hmm. of 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 the activities in the uh, in in the you know recently. So, in answer to like, okay, what's the next? You know, what's the dark side of the uh, yeah, zombie what's, apocalypse? What's the so some of these activities the are zombie apocalypse there. of this? Right. Yeah. The other thing that I think about, and this is closer to where the most of the projects that my center is involved in is is so if you if you take from a geopolitical perspective if you take that the end of the cold war to now there have been some violent wars in various parts of the world um but as a general but those and those have had dramatic and powerful effects there in those communities um, but writ large, the growth of, you know, and there's lots of studies about, about, um, income inequality, you know, separating, but, it, but also there's sig- substantial growth of middle class in places that there never used to be a middle, middle class, India uh-huh. and China uh-huh. particularly uh-huh. come to mind. Um, the economic uh, uh, um, increase of fortunes in across Africa, even though Africa still has like got a burgeoning civil war in Sudan right now and all kinds of craziness. But that whole period, you know, 1989 to the, to the present um, has rested upon, and you know, s- some argue even the underpinnings of the cold war. So post-World War II to the present, there's a framework for how the world works. Um, and an argument that that framework for how the world works is uh, largely predicated on a system that, and this may be a bit of hubris, but that the U.S. set up as coming out of, of, of World War II. And, and that system won out over the, its competitor, uh-huh. you know, the, 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 the uh, world order that would have been based on a communist backbone from the Soviet Union. So that is, has won out. But it is dependent on the cooperation of allied nations, either formally allied through treaties or allied in uh, operation and function and perspective. Um, and that's where the zombie apocalypse of the, the, of the sort of of the nation state is because there's I would argue that there's countries out there that really fundamentally want to rewrite the how we function like, you know. How do we implement the sanctions against Russia? It's because there's something called the bank, the, the SWIFT transactions. It's a SWIFT system. I don't remember what SWIFT stands for, but it's, it's the international banking. Right. Um, well, who who does not control that system? Russia and China do not control that system. Ah. Would they really like that the U.S. not be the major influencer of that system? Sure, because who sanctions Putin and his oligarchs? Well, 
the first place the U.S. goes is it goes to the SWIFT system and says, don't let those people transfer money. And now all those oligarchs that are crazy wealthy can't buy super yachts and mansions in wherever. Um, likewise, on the other side of the, uh, of the, uh, of the hemisphere, there's, you know, China has, has been very explicit in saying that um, they are prepared to take their rightful place by the way they see their history um, as the um, leading – now, they're – perspective is it's all very benevolent they're uh -huh. going to lead the world to a place of common pros prosperity there's a couple of key taglines that are escaping my the tip of my tongue right now um but their ability to do that achieve their goals which will s uh, significantly disrupt the world order as we've known it for the past 50 75 years um will start with convincing other nations that the status quo is not to their favor and that allying with one of these other competing visions is. Um, and when that is predicated on false information, misleading information, if they've got a better system and it's really that rising tide that they're uh, promoting is going to float all boats, well, maybe they've got a better... Maybe they got a better system. I don't know. You know, uh, Galileo <laughs> came up with a with a, with a, with a better system. You know, the the round Earth system is a better than a better <laughs> works better than the flat Earth system. So at some point, a competing idea was better. Uh -huh. um, but sometimes when it's competing economic ideas, there's some other interest that's there, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah. is you know Galileo, you know, he convinced people based on science that was provable and repeatable you know it wasn't only galileo there's copernicus there's galileo and there's a hundred other scientists that are just all lined up that say the world works consistently this way and yeah i did math too and my math is the same as his math and the world is round it circles around the sun etc 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 um but when an argument is based on you know falseness on uh uh, misleading out of context and particularly when done for the sole purpose of deceiving the audience member and whether that's at the individual person to person uh, debate stage or whether that's at the nation state de debate stage, then it's not a fair playing field. Um, and then you call into question who's going to benefit from that, who's going to lose from that. So there's, I mean, that's a super long answer to your question. About <laughs> what, what, what form is the zombie apocalypse right. going to take? Um, but that's uh, but it partially involves the tragedy of Russian oligarchs not being able to buy yachts. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Apparently, yeah. So what can we do to what can we do to sort of avoid the apocalypse scenario and perhaps even create a utopia scenario? Well, so. yeah, and like, are there ways to use what we know about? the appeal of stories and how these narratives can take root in our brains, the, you know, the ability of these things to zombify us, can that be turned around for yeah. good? Yes. So a couple of things. So there's, there's lots of work being done to detect, attribute, and characterize uh, disinformation um, with the idea that if a piece of information is detected as disinformation because it has certain characteristics that's attributed to uh, some sender, and then it's characterized. This is the really the hard part: the characterizing. Is it for malicious intent or not? Um, that will give the audience, whether that's just everyday citizens or whether that's 
people in particular positions of power, whether that's, you know, influencers, whether that's media influencers, economic influencers, diplomatic influence, governance influencers, or people in actual governance, um, uh, give them the tools to better parse that uh, and, and uh, evaluate and vet that information. Um, I would also say that that helps with labeling the supply of disinformation, but it doesn't do anything on the consumption side. And that's, I think, part of, uh, of, of, of your question. And so one of the things that, that, that when asked, um, now this, this may be me a bit of being a, you know, a carpenter with a hammer and therefore I see everything as a nail. <laughs> um, but, and also partly, you know, I've spent much of my academic career studying stories and unpacking stories. And that's how I got, got started on this path was the study of, of stories and the study of how new technologies used stories. Uh -huh. I didn't go to grad school to study disinformation. You know? <laughs> um, I went to grad school to study stories. Um, but, and so the analysis of how stories are structured is, you know, one, it's, it's, it's inherent into to everything that I, the, that I, that I do, but I think it's a good thing for everybody to do. And if you, if, if you take the simple step of saying, okay, I'm, I, I see this information and if it is a story or if I'm starting to understand it as a story, who are the main actors? What's the conflict? And what is the, what is the, what is the outcome that seems logical from what's getting set up here? And then ask the question, who does that benefit? And generally, you know, take, take oneself out of the equation to sort of identify you know, who does that benefit? Is there a particular actor that that, that benefits? And if that's, a, if that's an actor that is you know, beneficial to your worldview, great. And let's, and, you know, ho hopefully all the rest <laughs> of the components that we've been detecting and, an, uh, and attributing and characterizing also line up as, hey, this is high quality um, uh, in information that is, doesn't have an ulterior motive. But that's a, that's a tool that an individual uh, can use. And the other tool is just pay attention to one's emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, you start scrolling through. Um, there was a period of time uh, that, that, you know, I was going through, you know, my Facebook feed and I just found myself getting angry and angrier. And I just, <laughs> it was all I could do to keep myself from firing off something angry, you know, in response to something that I thought was, you know, blatantly false, incredibly stupid, dangerous, um, uh, harmful to whatever. Um, and any indicator that you can, if you, if you, you develop that self-awareness, like, I'm getting angry at this is a really good indicator that you're being, <laughs> that you may be being manipulated. Mm -hmm. um, you might be zombified if. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, so there's actually a, a term you're probably familiar with the uh, amygdala hijack. I mean, the, that idea that your conscious discerning brain is being, uh, I mean, this is, you know, isn't that what, yeah, deactivated what the, the zombie by, virus yeah. does? Uh, yeah. you know, pick, pick your zombie movie and whatever mechanism of zombification, you know, your brain erodes, but, and become just, you know, core uh, emotional self or, or primal drive self. It's exactly, I mean, the, uh, the yeah. analogy is really, really good. Um, and so uh, any sort of swing on the emotional uh, scale, um, the interesting thing, so just before I left 
the office to walk over here to join you for this podcast, one of my colleagues was 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 talking about an article that she had read that was studying that did a study of talk late night talk show humor and its ability to disrupt that course of polarization and the course of going down the rabbit hole of disinformation and conspiracy oh, That's theory. so cool. I know. I want to go find the study and I want to learn more about it. And I want to put it in the pile of papers. At the top. <laughs> because there's, there, are, there are relatively, you know, there's, there's studies of like conflict resolution and how do you get, you know, hardcore uh, Palestinians and uh, Jewish nationalists, how do you get them in the same room and start talking uh-huh. together? There's, there's a fair bit of study about those kinds of things, but to date that, that put them in a comedy stuff, club, <laughs> right? And the answer might be put them in a comedy club. Um, but where's and so this is back to you know the utopic, uh, you know where's the equal attention to crafting emotionally powerful stories that have these trajectories, but that aren't all about grievance, but they're about the common values that we all share and that point towards the things that we do agree on whereas instead of swimming in the toxicity of all of the uh, of the uh, of the things that are that are opposed whether that whether that's domestic or or international so you were saying at the uh, the beginning that every story has a a conflict so is there a way of like having stories that have conflict without it actually fomenting conflict among people i think there are i mean um trying to think off the top of my top of my head um i guess you could have like a challenge out there in the environment that you have to overcome and that could be a a conflict right right you have to you know deal with something that is threatening even if it's not other humans yeah so so uh, you know what immediately pops to mind is is climate change you know you and one would think that there's enough evidence out there that says uh there is an external threat. Well, it's external. It's not a human-to-human threat. I mean, humans have a whole bunch, you know, like, more carbons we pump into the atmosphere, the worse this problem is going to get, and we're, you know, a major contributor to this problem. Sure. But, hey, in 50 years, in 100 years, things are going to be catastrophic for a whole bunch of people. So shouldn't we all work together? I mean, this is the principle behind the Kyoto Accords, the Paris Agreement, on and on and on. And we struggle there, though I maybe we're making some ground. But you would think that there was you know, the idea of uniting around a common common conflict, and especially if that's not another human, then there's some value there in offloading that to uh, uh, to something else. I mean, that's like maybe what we need is a um, is a is an asteroid uh, on a <laughs> on a you know an incontrovertibly mm-hmm. calculated by all all folks, you know, impact uh, trajectory with Earth. Um, of course, then we have to go get Ben Affleck and yeah. right. uh, we know how that, Bruce Willis, how that. Bruce Willis so, and yeah. you know, <laughs> send a mining crew to, to, to put a nuclear bomb in the middle of it. But uh, but the idea of a, of a common... Uh, but the other thing that, that those conflicts don't necessarily always have to happen mm-hmm. between uh, people. And an example I use a lot when I'm sort of introducing this idea is if you think about a laundry detergent commercial. Very rarely is there a conflict. I mean, sometimes they structure it between, you know, right, the leading two brand. people. Yeah. yeah. Or, oh, oh, okay. Right. Okay, sure. Or between the other. Sure. But very often it's, you know, some parent 
has an inability to clean their clothes, their children's clothes. I mean, the mm-hmm. child plays on the baseball field and gets dirt and then they bring home. Yeah. Now they've got a dirty uniform and then there's the bad parent because the kid goes back to the game the next day with a dirty uniform. Ooh. Oh, you know, the horror, <laughs> horror, the horrors. Um, At least and, you tried to wash it. <laughs> and, and so they have, a, so the conflict takes the form of a, of a lack. The, the, mm-hmm. the person yeah. has it. So it's all, you know, in many mm-hmm. ways it's about, you know, how do we, back to your pers- mm-hmm. per- perspective question, mm-hmm. how do we reframe the perspective mm-hmm. so right. that uh, the, the conflict is, is something that we can all sort of share and then we can have a, each have a piece of the, of the, of the action steps that yeah. lead towards a resolution that has, because yeah. I, I firmly believe, you know, whether this is from a domestic political perspective or even an international relations perspective, there my my sense of this is a little rosier for domestic politics than it is for international relations, but the idea of of a common good at the end of this trajectory mm-hmm. um, that we ought to be able to think of that and and be able to, to to drive towards it. Yeah, there's of course the zombie apocalypse, right? The zombies that we if, we, if they come, then we'll all have to we'll work all together. have to work together, and we That's could potentially, so. I mean, use the zombie apocalypse as a kind of like stand in for all the existential threats that we might face and we can all get behind that about you know creating a zombie apocalypse right or just propaganda that the zombie apocalypse is happening Oh, or the dark. Wait, is that is that wait is that what we're doing? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) So one of the things. So just as a little, you know, segue into into zombie shows. uh, One of the things I find most fascinating. I've stopped watching Walking Dead after I don't know somewhere in eh, season five, six, or seven, something like that. I've lost lost track. Uh Um, But one of the things that got me into the show originally was how fascinating it was that very rapidly the zombies weren't the biggest existential threat to survival. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, and and so it's that comes to mind when you think, well, gee, isn't the zombie apocalypse... One of the reasons we struggle... Like, this is, I think, maybe one of the... One, it's the fickleness of humanity, right? The, that, that faced with an apparent threat. Um, and, you know, just to extend to the, you know, the headlines of today... Um, not literally today, just of the past few, like the explosion of AI powered um, language models, you know, chat GPT, uh, GPT-4, BARD, there's, you mm-hmm. know, they're all being released uh, now and their capabilities are remarkable. There's lots of debate about are they as remarkable as they really seem or are they really narrowly sure. framed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can, it's fun to watch those debates. Um, but, there is no doubt that the research is going to continue. Um, and so there's both massive potential, but also massive threat to what is in our information and environment. As soon as people start turning to ChatGPT for search, Think about. I already do that, by the way. <laughs> so, and as soon as Dave starts, <laughs> I already started. I asked you, tell me you these. Started the tell zombie me the apocalypse. 10, yeah, best things for this, or tell me ten tips on this. So, right. Yeah. And okay. Have you done any personal experiments comparing that to Google and DuckDuckGo and Bing and other search? I'll look, and I mean, well, a lot of times it'll be. I'm trying to think. There was something I was looking up. Oh my gosh, it was like either like best. Oh no, was it like? 
top 40 entrepreneurs under 40 or something where it had pulled, it had clearly just pulled from Forbes or something. So sometimes right. like you can see, and sometimes it'll even say, but sometimes it'll lie. Sometimes it'll say, Forbes says, Bill Johnson is one of the top. And then it's like, turns out this person doesn't even exist. They just like made it up. So right. it's, yeah. Right, because it's doing something fundamentally different than what than what yeah. you know, Google yeah. is doing. Yeah. Um, and it functions differently. And that becomes, you know, the level of technological literacy to function and do basic citizen stuff, um, basic student stuff. Like, you know, when we were kids, we probably spent a bunch of time with an encyclopedia. <laughs> and then, you know, the next generation, it's Wikipedia. And then the next generation is ChatGPT. But all three of those things have fundamentally different um, uh, aspects of how they were developed as a, as a body of knowledge. Sure. And ChatGPT, like I would argue that Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia are both bodies of knowledge. ChatGPT, something a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. Um, but understanding how it works yeah. is becomes important. So do we all need to become computer scientists? Maybe. Um, yeah. Or at least have that sort of literacy about sort of what it means for algorithms to underlie so much of the way that we interact with information. Absolutely. Sort of. So this term, I, this is not mine and I wish I could remember from whom I heard it first. And I don't even know if from whom I heard, but algor algorithmic literacy. Yes. Mm. The idea of not necessarily knowing how to write the algorithms, but conceptually understanding one, that they exist and two, that they, they have a function and that the function may not be immediately apparent to how you use a particular thing. Interesting. Um, whether it's ChatGPT for finding out who the 40 top entrepreneurs right. under age 40 are, which if the language model, the last update that the language model has access to is actually 2021. It's going to be, it, yeah. It, and it, they're not just, ChatGPT is, it's a probability engine. So it just yeah. takes your prompt and starts putting strings of words together with with some language structure rules. I mean, it understands grammar. Um, but what's the probability of the next word is Bill as yeah. opposed to Sally or whatever. And like, yeah. they may not be on the forms list at yeah. all because it's not doing a fact check sort of. Yeah. Um, it's not searching for information. It's sort of just constructing sentences that make some sense in response to the prompt. Yeah. Um, whether they're attached to reality or not. Yeah. And there's, and yeah. it's, 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 it is quite, I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable achievement. Um, for a long time, you know, I would look at things that were synthetically uh, uh -huh. produced. And one of our projects in the, in the center is actually looking at this. Can you develop an algorithm that would be able to tell if a paragraph was written by mm -hmm. a computer mm -hmm. completely synthetically or if it was written by a human? Uh -huh. So... Um, and we've developed an algorithm that does really well on Grover and GPT-2 and GPT-3. Uh -huh. um, and it fails miserably on ChatGPT. Oh, interesting. Partly because of how the way the the, uh, the detection mm -hmm. algorithm is trained and what is it based on. And we hope that our particular approach is a little more robust than some of the others that are out there in the in the field that's doing this kind of work. Um, so but, this is sort of the Turing test, but now we're, we can't do it ourselves, right? So the Turing test is this like test for, it's a, yeah, you know, is the computers? Yeah, have to do the right. So. The test is, can this, is this indistinguishable from talking to a human, chatting with a human? And now these chatbots can 
pass that test for all intents and purposes yeah. um, for us humans. But now we're designing or you're designing computer programs <laughs> to try to detect that. So I don't know what that says about where we're at. But yeah. <laughs> but the thing that, that is that is. Uh, so one of the a concern from a, like a from a national security sort of standpoint, mm -hmm. when you think about disinformation, you know, it's one of the themes that we've been talking about today is. Um, when you've got when the when the trolls are humans, there's limits to how much they can produce, and that limits their impact, mm. and it limits their dominance of the of a particular mm. uh, network of information flows. But when those uh, trolls are paired with bots, then that expands. But when the trolls themselves are not human, but are computers, like ChatGPT can spit out tweets on a particular topic at you know. Thousands of tweets per second, way faster than any human can possibly do it. So the the ability of of artificially intelligent um, uh, uh, programs to produce information at a rate that would be overwhelming for a for a human makes them great tools for disinformation. Because one of the ways that you get people to believe you is you're you're first into the information environment. Uh -huh. You okay. have a huge advantage if you are first. You know, first on the scene. Uh -huh. That's why news reporters are always going for a scoop because sure. mm -hmm. you know. Um, then, uh, uh, then if you then you, you can win by volume. You can win by speed. Right. You can win by volume. You dilute everything else, or you can win yeah. by how you the quality of your storytelling, basically. Mm. And for the longest time, the weakness of all the computational platforms, all the synthetic gener text generators, has been the weakness of their storytelling. They're not very good, mm -hmm. and so that's for, you know, a discerning reader can be like, ah, someone's fishing. They're, they're this. still not great, right? You had like you had the Chat, chat GPT like write this story for class. Oh yeah, well that was still and, three or three. That was okay. that wasn't four. So All right. it's gotten better since I wrote that. Because it was like, but... what did it say? Like that you oh, know you looked dream. up at the stars and that every star is like a unique human being or something. I, that I was had ridiculous. it right. I said, could you write uh, a, <laughs> a story, heartwarming a heartwarming story. <laughs> story that explains why students shouldn't use AI to write their stories? And they said, <laughs> like they said, when I was in college, I had a dream that I looked up at the stars and I realized every star was unique. And that's when I realized that people shouldn't use AI. To write. So it, it tried, you know, um, but it's getting better, you know, and it, and it was fast. And I actually do still use it like sometimes to say, like, can you make this email more compelling? I might start saying, can you make this email better at tricking a discerning reader. Um, so, um, That's it. The, uh, I, uh, so the, 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 the ability of it to, to, to scale and speed. And now that it's, that it's weaknesses and the quality of its storytelling is, is starting to, uh, be surmounted yeah, yeah. makes that a, um, you know, an, an, an area of significant concern, especially for, if you have an interest as I do in a, um, in an information environment that is remains as pollution free as possible, and we're never going to you know achieve a completely pollution free. Um, but if we can have you know the the equivalent of Los Angeles air circa you know 1995 <laughs> as opposed to Los Angeles air circa 1975 1985, um, you know that would be that would be uh, uh, a, a good thing. And you know we've got to put. 
it's not inherent necessarily, as far as I know, in terms of the amount of study we've done so far on something like ChatGPT. It is an example of, unlike the algorithms that drive Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, that are geared towards in, engagement and and have demonstrable effect of left to their own devices, they will um, promote more and more uh, outlandish, extreme, salacious, uh, you know, harsh emotion-inducing content because they're mm-hmm. optimized for uh, for clicks or in, yeah. for clicks, yeah. and that's a combination of how the algorithms perceive prior human behavior and the nature of human behavior. ChatGPT. Uh, you know, we haven't used it as much yet, so we don't necessarily know if it has a proclivity in that uh, in that direction. Um, but certainly, a, a nefarious actor that wants to exploit its features has a significant advantage in this in this arena. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. I have to run. Well, so. we're at time. Um, so, I mean, I felt I feel like we we kind of tried to uh, have like a. Like uh, the positive spin at the end, <laughs> and I feel like uh, you know, it keeps warping oh, uh, back yeah, to the zombie yeah, apocalypse. I think uh, so, but you know what? Maybe that's just where we're at. It's like we're kind of on the cusp of of who knows who knows what. So, well, you know, I mean, we can always just talk to people in real life too. That's <laughs> <laughs> worst case scenario. That's right. So, <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us. This was. A delicious conversation. Yes. (laughs) My pleasure. It has been a a fun afternoon, and uh, thanks for having me. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media. And we would like to thank all of the fresh brains who made this episode possible, including the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU. The KGB. No, what? The Lincoln Center for Applied (laughs) Ethics. And all of the awesome brains that actually help to like make the sound, make the illustrations, uh, the music, the propaganda, all of our propaganda <laughs> that, that get you guys to tune in. The and tall that, Roms, the Neil Smiths. So the, tall makes like well, he does the sound, right? And, yeah, he mixes then, our sound. And then Neil makes the sort of the posters, the propaganda posters <laughs> that show how that make us all look really cool and powerful. Uh huh. Right? And, and Lemmy's our composer.
who made like our anthem, right? Like, like, <laughs> the, yeah. yes. um, and okay. the Z team, the Z team, who are people that we've sort of mind controlled into helping to spread the word. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. And if you want to be mind controlled to spread the word, you can follow us on all social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and share zombify the zombified podcast with everybody in your network that's true so or maybe it's the only way to not be mind controlled right there there are people out there trying to mind control you and we offer the only solution i think that's what we should oh that's right yeah Yeah. Yeah. so um and uh, also you can find us on the web at zombified.org uh and you can also buy our merch that's right if you don't want to be merch controlled then you know go out and buy our shirts and so right because if you buy our shirts then there will be less room in your closet for you to be manipulated into buying shirts from other people yeah and if you like look at your closet and you realize all your shirts say like i don't know what what, what zombified would... media that and that would be good yeah i was trying to think live, of what the bad and... shirt that would be like the shirt that would indicate that you've been zombified Whatever. Just buy our shirts. (laughs) 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 Turns out propaganda is really tough. Uh, So. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, thank you all for listening. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.